episode 70 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Dan Kaminsky, who's the chief scientist at White Ops, uh, uh, the uh, the man who found and fixed a major and very troubling flaw in the DNS system, and uh, my unlikely ally in the fight against SOPA uh, because of its impact on DNS security. Uh, welcome, Dan. It's good to be here. All right. And Michael Vattis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, I'm glad to uh, have you back on the uh, – I guess that to be back with you on the uh, podcast. It's good to have a, a voice that isn't as hoarse as mine was last week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, plus, plus, you know, you can usually count on Michael to know the law. That's this is a, this is a valuable thing in a legal podcast. Uh, and uh, Jason Weinstein, who took over last uh, uh, week uh, in a coup uh, uh, in the Cyber Law podcast and ran it uh, and uh, uh, interviewed the. Uh, 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 our guest, uh, uh, Jason Brown from the Secret Service. Uh, Jason is formerly with the Justice Department where he oversaw criminal computer crime co- prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the record holder for returning to step to the practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started. Uh, uh, for old time's sake, we ought to do one more, one last, hopefully, uh, this week in NSA. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the, um, the USA Freedom Bill uh, uh, was passed, was, was debated, uh, not amended after uh, efforts passed, signed, and is in effect, and uh, uh, the government is busy cleaning up the mess from the 48, 72 hours of uh, expiration uh, um, from the uh, of, of the original 215 and other sunsetted provisions. Uh, uh, so USA Freedom, now that it's taken effect, uh, I guess it's it's worth asking, what does it do? It, it gets rid of bulk collection. Um, across the board, really, it says, no, you will not go get stuff just because you need it uh, uh, and won't be able to get it later. If you can't get it from the guy who uh, holds it, uh, you're not going to get it. Uh, and uh, it does that for a pen trap. It does that for uh, um, Section 215, the subpoena pro- program. And it most famously gets rid of the bulk collection program that NSA was running and that uh, Snowden uh, leaked uh, in his first and apparently only successful uh, effort to influence U.S. policy. Um, and uh, and then it makes a few changes uh, to how the FISA court works, uh, uh, creating a body of amici who are supposed to be basically al-Qaeda's lawyers. So, well, sorry, all right, that's editorializing, but uh, just a bit. They're supposed to stand for freedom and against actually gathering intelligence on al-Qaeda, so uh, it's pretty close. Uh, uh, and we've never given the... Uh, uh, the mafia, uh, its own lawyers in wiretap cases before, uh, uh, before the, uh, uh, wiretap is carried out. Uh, but we're gonna do that for, uh, to be uh fair, you were wiretapping the mafia at the time. Oh, we absolutely. Well, the, the NSA never really had much interest in the, uh, the mafia, but uh, uh, with, with Title III, yeah, you, you, you went in, you said, I wanted a, a Title III order, and uh, you got it. Uh, uh, if you met the uh, standard in the 
view of the judge, and uh, there were no additional lawyers appointed to argue against giving you uh, access to uh, uh, the mafia's communications. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Michael, I, I, you looked at it as well. I'd say those are the two big changes. Uh, there's some transparency issues and other things. Uh, anything that strikes you as significant out of this? I think the only other thing I would mention is the um, uh, restrictions on NSLs, uh, where you now need to have specific selection terms for NSLs as well, not just for 215 orders. Yeah, they, the, really, the House just went through and said, uh, tell us what capabilities can be used to gather national security agencies uh, information, and we will impose this uh, uh, specific selection term requirement on it. Uh, um, and that is really the, the main change, probably for ordinary uses of 215 as though it were a criminal subpoena. Not that much change. I think... Uh, the, the notion of relevance has probably always carried some notion that there is a, a point at which you've gathered too much, and the courts would have said that's too much. I, I think the big issue, or one big issue going forward, is going to be uh, how effective the private sector's um, own storage uh, practices are in, in meeting NSA's needs. I mean, there's been an assumption going in that, oh, okay, telecoms already retain all this stuff for 18 months for billing purposes, and they're required to by FCC regulation. But, it, but I think as we've discussed before, they're not really required to retain all the, the stuff that NSA has been getting under the bulk uh, retention program, especially now that people have unlimited calling plans. Telecoms don't need to retain information about every number you call because it doesn't doesn't matter for billing purposes. So uh, I think going forward, we'll probably hear from NSA, you know, that they're they're not getting all the information they need. And so I don't think this issue is going to go away forever now. I think we'll be we'll be hearing complaints and, and having some desire by the administration to impose some sorts of uh, retention, data retention requirements on telecoms, and then there'll be a real fight. That will be a fight. Uh, uh, yeah, I have I have said uh, uh, recently that uh, uh, sure this uh, this new approach can be as effective as uh, uh, the old approach if you think that uh, going to the library is an adequate substitute for using Google. Um, they won't be able to do a lot of the searching that they uh, could do, and they won't have as much data. Uh, uh, but uh, on the upside, uh, the, there are widespread uh, um, rumors that the uh, database never included uh, many smaller carriers, never included mobile data because of probably because of difficulties uh, separating out location data from the things that uh, they wanted to look at. So privacy concerns had already sort of half crippled the, the, the program, and, and it also seems to me you'd have to be a remarkably stupid terrorist to think that uh, it's a good idea to call home using a phone that, you, uh, that, that operates in the United States. Uh, people will, uh, you know, they'll use call of duty or something to, uh, to communicate. All right. Um, the, the New York Times has one of its dumber efforts to create a, a scandal where, the, where there is none. Uh, uh, it was written by Charlie Savage and uh, criticized uh, on Lawfare by Ben Wittes and uh, 
Charlie, who's you know uh, probably values his reputation in in uh, national security circles somewhat, uh, uh, writes a really uh, uh, slashing response to Ben Wittes. But I think, frankly, Ben has the better of the argument. The, the, the story says, without public notice or debate, the Obama administration has expanded the NSA's warrantless surveillance of Americans' international Internet traffic to search for evidence of malicious computer hacking, uh, according to some documents obtained from Snowden. Uh, and it turns out, if I understand this right, that what... Uh, NSA was looking for in those, uh, uh, in that surveillance, which is a 702 surveillance, was, um, uh, malware signatures and other indicia that uh, somebody was hacking Americans. Uh, so they collected or proposed to collect the incoming communications from the hackers and then to see what was being exfiltrated by the hackers. In what universe would you describe that as Americans' international Internet traffic? I don't think when somebody's hacking me or stealing my stuff that that's my traffic. That's his traffic. Uh, uh, and and to lead off with that uh, uh, framing of the issue uh, is clearly, you know, baiting somebody for a, uh, uh, a, a an attempted uh, scandal, but uh, a, a complete misrepresentation of what was being done. I think one of the issues is there's a real feeling, what are you going to do with that data? Are you going to report it? Are you going to stop the malware? Are you going to hunt someone down? Like, All of those where's things. the benefit, really? Yeah. Because there's a lot of doubt. Yeah, I, I I actually think that that's you know the FBI regularly. This was this is a program really to support the FBI in its uh, mission, uh, and the FBI has a program that's remarkably successful in the sense that people are, are quite surprised when they show up to go to folks who have been compromised to say, by the way, you're you're pwned, uh, and most of the time when they do that, uh, people say, what, huh? Uh, and so um, this is. It, this is where some of that information almost certainly comes from. You know, the, the, the reality is everyone always says, I can't believe Sony got hacked. And many of us actually in the field are like, of course we can believe it. Yeah. Sony got hacked because everybody's hacked somewhere. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's a real need to do something about this on a, on a larger scale. There's just such a lack of trust going on out there. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's not without reason. Jason, uh, any thoughts about the uh, the FBI's role in this? Yeah, I think yeah. that, um, as you said, the FBI does a very effective job at uh, knocking on doors or either pushing out information generally to uh, through alerts about uh, you know new malware signatures or knocking on doors to tell particular victims they've been hacked. They don't have to tell them how they know or what the source of the information is, but the information is still valuable. Um, I, you know, I thought to the extent that this is one of the the one of those things under 702 where, you know, I think a reasonable person would look at this and be appreciative of the fact that, that the government was doing this, not uh, not critical. And as you said, the notion that this is, you know, sort of stolen Internet traffic uh, from Americans is, is characterized as surveillance of Americans' traffic is a little bit uh, nonsensical. So, um, I... So uh, we're done beating up Charlie Savage. Uh, I like him. Uh, he deserves it on this one, but uh, um, he's actually usually uh, f- 
uh, reasonably careful. Uh, um, the MasterCard settlement, or the failed MasterCard settlement in the Target case. Uh, um, it, uh, Jason, uh, can you bring us up to date on that and tell us what lessons we should learn from it? Yeah, so, you know, there have been so many high-profile breaches in the last 18 months, people may not remember Target, uh, which, of course, was breached <laughs> in the holiday season of 2013. And uh, MasterCard, uh, as, as credit card uh, companies often do, uh, try to negotiate a settlement on behalf of all of their issuing banks, with Target uh, to pay um, damages for losses suffered as a result of the breach. And in April, MasterCard negotiated a proposed settlement with Target that would require Target to pay about $19 million to the various financial institutions that had to replace cards and cover fraud losses and things of that nature. But three of the largest banks, in fact, I think the three largest MasterCard issuing banks, Citigroup, Capital One, and J.P. Morgan Chase, um, all said no and uh, and indicated they would not support the, the settlement and scuttled it because they thought $19 million was too small to cover the losses. There are, there are trade groups for the banks and credit unions that say that, that between the Target and Home Depot breaches combined, uh, there were about $350 million in costs uh, incurred by the financial institutions to reissue cards and cover losses. And so even if you factor out the Home Depot portion of that, $19 million is is a pretty small number. So um, Target is it has to go back to the drawing board, uh, and as does MasterCard, to figure out if there's a settlement or if the litigation is going to continue. And and there's also a, a proposed class action ongoing in Minnesota involving some smaller banks and credit unions, as well. Um, you know, it only cost them ten million dollars to settle the consumer class action, but the the bigger exposure is here with the financial institutions. You know, Michael made reference last week to some uh, press in which some commentators suggested the class actions from data breaches were on the wane and. Um, I think we both uh, are of the view that that's that's just wrong. That you know there there may be some uh, uh, decrease in privacy related class actions related to you know misuse of private information by providers. But when it comes to data breaches involving retailers and credit card information, I think not only are the consumer class actions not going anywhere, but but the class actions involving the financial institutions are definitely not going anywhere. Standing is not an issue at all. It's pretty easy for these plaintiffs to demonstrate that they suffered some kind of injury. They're the ones covering the losses and reissuing the cards and and uh and depending on the size of the breach the damages can be quite extensive so i, I think it's um i think it's a sign of the times that in these big breaches you'll find banks that are that are uh, uh insisting on a much bigger pound of flesh from the victims yeah i th- i think you're right about that i mean it, it the the settlements as 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 i um, so when I did a, a quick study of settlements, uh, for consumers are running between 50 cents and two bucks per exposure, which is not a lot. Um, and the bank's expenses for reissuing cards are more like 50 bucks per victim. But it's also true that many of these cards are never going to be used. Many of these, many of these numbers are never going to be used. And so spending 50 bucks for every one of them to, uh, um, uh, to reissue the cards at considerable cost to the uh, consumers as well might be an overreaction, and I wouldn't be surprised if that were an argument. So, so my way of looking at this uh, is from the perspective of deterrence. Um, is $19 million enough of a cost target to cause them to change their behavior and really right. invest in... It's going to be extraordinarily expensive to migrate our payment system to the reality, which is we have online verification. We can use better technologies. They exist. There's a dozen ways of doing it that don't lead to a password to your money being 
<laughs> all over the world. Okay? Right. I mean, this is ridiculous. It is. And I'm I'm just going to say the big banks have a point. Nineteen million dollars is doesn't seem not, like a lot. It's not enough to get the sea levels to say we really need to invest in this. This never needs to happen again. Okay. And I'm not saying it's three three hundred and fifty is the right number. But I gotta agree, 19 is not. Alright then. Uh, uh, okay, um, speaking of everybody being hacked, uh, everybody includes the Office of Personnel Management. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, Awkward. uh, all four million, uh, 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 four million people have had their records, uh, uh, stolen, and that's pretty much everybody who ever worked for the government while OPM existed. Uh, uh, and it looks as though they actually got the results of background checks on everybody who was going to get a security clearance, uh, which is where the most embarrassing stuff is. Uh, um, uh, you know, I... Um, uh, I foiled my first background investigation, uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, uh, quite amusing because the the government, in order to protect privacy, uh, blacked out the names of all the investigators who I wouldn't have known from Adam, but left in all my friends' names as they're talking about my drug use in the uh, in college, <laughs> I, or not. I, and so oh, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, they were all they were all stand-up guys for me. Um, but uh, uh, there is a lot of stuff in there that could be used for improper purposes, and it's perfectly clear that if the Chinese stole this, stole the anthem records, the health records, they are if it, they are living the civil libertarians' nightmare about what NSA is doing. They are actually building a database about every American uh, uh, in the country. Yeah, a little awkward, isn't it? I well, uh, uh, annoying at least. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, that's that. That Jason, I don't know uh, if you've got any thoughts about uh, uh, how OPM responds to this. They they apparently didn't exactly uh, cover themselves with glory in responding to an IG report from last year uh, saying uh, your systems suck so bad you ought to turn them off. Well, first of all, as your lawyer, I should say that your alleged drug use was outside the limitations period of any federal or state government that I'm aware of. So um, no one should come after you. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting that they were offering credit monitoring, uh, given that the hack has been attributed to China, which I, I don't think is having any money issues and is going to um, uh, steal my credit card information. I'm pretty sure that the, the victims include the three of us. So um, I'm looking forward to getting that free 18 months of credit monitoring. Um you know, I guess they've, they've held out the possibility that the theft was for profit as opposed to es- for espionage purposes. But, um, uh, you know, and, and the possibility that the Chinese actors are not state-sponsored actors, but that seems kind of nonsensical to me. Um, and I think that, as you said, as you both said, that the Chinese are building the very database on us that, that uh, uh, Americans fear that uh, the United States was building. Yeah, I, I and and I I agree with you that uh, credit monitoring is a sort of lame and bureaucratic response to this. Uh, instead, they really ought to have the FBI and the counterintelligence experts ask them ask what would I do with this data if I were the Chinese, and uh, and then ask people who have uh, whose data has been uh, exploited to look for that kind of behavior. I mean, I, I, knowing how the Chinese do their recruiting, um, I'm guessing they're looking for people who have 
family still in China, uh, you know, grandmothers, mothers, uh, and the like, and who also work for the U.S. government, and they will recruit them on the basis of uh, ethnic and uh, um, uh, patriotic uh, uh, duty. Um, and so uh, um, folks who um, are in that situation could have their um, their relatives visited for a little chat. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is unique to Chinese use of this data that we ought to be watching for a little more aggressively than uh, stealing our credit. You know, I, I, I worry about family and friends here. I worry about the fact that the most effective intelligence really is human intelligence. And pretty much everyone in the system now is, you can trace out their networks, you can figure out their pain points. Yeah. Like, from an espionage standpoint, this is terrifying. This is not, you know, just like credit rating, like, like credit monitoring, that's the response. Right. But that's all we got. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's, that's all. That's all we got when it's hackers. We should think of a new response to this. We should. But, you know, like like all hacks, attributing anything is a pain in the butt. Yes. Because here's the secret. Hacking's not hard. Teenagers can do it. Yes, that's true. So, you know, when you look at, like, a hack of this depth, you're like, must be a state actor. Well, you know what? It's like, it can be four to eight guys with ramen for a few months. Yeah, if, if, but... Why would they invest? Why not? Um, well, data has value. They'll sell it. Maybe. I, so that's right. Uh, on the other hand, the Anthem data never showed up in the markets. Yeah. We, we, we have better intelligence uh, than we used to. Uh, we know, we'll know if this stuff gets sold, and it hasn't been sold because uh, I don't want to give the Chinese ideas. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think <laughs> you need to give them ideas. Sorry. Uh. So one more story just to, to, to show that I was well ahead of the, of the Chinese on this. Uh, my first uh, uh, security clearance, they asked me for people with whom I had obligations of affection or loyalty who were foreigners. And I said, I'm an international lawyer, uh, and I, this was before you could just print out your uh, uh, Outlook contacts, I Xeroxed all those sheets of business cards that, that are collected, and I sent it to the guy. I said, these are all the clients or people I've pitched, uh, and he said, there's like a thousand names here. I said, yeah, that's the people that I either work for or want to work for, and he said, um, but I just want people to whom you have uh, ties of obligation or loyalty or affection. I said, well, they're all clients, and I like them, and I have obligations to clients, or I want them to be. I've, I've pitched them. And he finally stopped me. He said, no, no. I mean, are you sleeping with any of them? I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good luck, uh, China, figuring out which of them, if any, I was actually sleeping with. Uh, did uh, you say you gave up all those names to China? I, I, they're, they're all <laughs> given up. Did. Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, um, last topic, uh, Putin's trolls. Uh, I thought this was fascinating. This was, yeah. The New York Times really distinguished itself with this article because it told us something we didn't know, and it shed light on kind of something astonishing. This is a, the inner Internet uh, um, Association, I think, uh, uh, is um, their um, army of trolls, and the, and the Chinese have an even larger army of trolls, and they've 
essentially Putin's uh, uh, FSB has figured out that if you uh, don't want to have a Facebook revolution or a uh, Twitter revolution, you need to have people on Twitter, on Facebook, 24 hours a day, posting comments and turning what would otherwise be our uh, uh, evidence of dissent into a toxic waste dump uh, with people uh, trashing each other, uh, uh, going off in weird directions, uh, saying stupid things to the point where no one wants to read the comments anymore. Uh, I, and it's now a policy. They've got a whole bunch of people doing it. And on top of it, they've decided to Hell, this, you know, if the U.S. is going to export Twitter and Twitter revolutions, then we'll export trolling. Uh, and uh, to the point where they've started making up uh, chemical spills and uh, uh, tweeting them with realistic video and uh, uh, people weighing in to say, oh, yeah, I can see it from my house. Look at all, oh, look at those flames, all completely made up uh, and doing it uh, as though it were happening in Louisiana. No, it's, uh, you know, the reality is that for a long time, the culture was managed. We had broadcasts, broadcasters had direct government links, like everything was filtered. And the big experiment of the internet was what if we just removed those filters? What if we just let the people manage it themselves? And eventually, astroturfing did not start with Russia. Like, there's been right. astroturfing for years. It's where you have these people, you know, making fake events and, and controlling the message. What is changing is the scale of it. What is changing is who's doing it. What is changing is the, the organization and the amount of investment. You have people who are professionally operating to reduce the credibility of Twitter, of Facebook, so that, quote, unquote, the only thing you can trust is the broadcast. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think they call the uh, the Chinese version of this the 50-cent army because yeah. they get 50 cents a post. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I guess I am surprised that uh, the Russians would do that to us in what is plainly an effort to test to see whether they could uh, totally disrupt our emergency response. And, and you know, it didn't do much in uh, uh, Louisiana, but it wouldn't be hard in a more serious crisis for them to create panic, doubt, and certainly uncertainty about the reliability of a whole bunch of media uh, in the United States. And this was clearly a dry run. And our response to it was... That pretty much that. I, I, I would have thought that the U.S. government would say, no, you don't, you don't create, um, fake emergencies inside the United States by pretending to be U.S. news media. Uh, uh, pardon? I was going to say all those alien sightings in Roswell in the last 50 years were, you think were Russia or China? Uh, well, that, they were pre-Twitter. I, I, I'm guessing not, but, uh, uh, from now on, I think we can assume they are. You know, what it all comes back to is the crisis of legitimacy. Yeah. People do not trust the institutions that are around them. They feel like there's too much manipulation, too much spin, too many lies. And as it happens, institutions are not all bad. Like, you know what? Vaccines are awesome. Right. <laughs> but because we have this lack of, of legitimacy, people are looking to find what is the thing I'm supposed to be paying attention to because the normal stuff keeps coming out that it was a lie. 
And and really, you know, what what Russia's doing here is saying, we're going to find the things that you're going to instead that you think aren't lying. We're going to lie there, too. Because what we really want is we want America to stop airing our dirty laundry through this Twitter thing. And if America's not going to regulate Twitter, we're just going to go ahead and make a mess of it, too. Yeah, I, I think uh, their, their view is, well, Twitter undermines our legima- legitimacy. We can use it to undermine yours. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Russians screwing uh, with Americans? I'm more likely I'm surprised think. you guys see it as an effort to undermine Twitter. It, it, it strikes me as classic KGB disinformation tactics. And yeah. it seems to me they're just they're they're using a new medium and they're as you said before, they're they're doing dry runs so that when they actually have a need to engage in information operations against the US or against Ukraine or against some some other country, they'll know how to do it. They'll have practiced uh cores of, of trolls who know how to do this stuff in today's media. I don't think they're trying yeah, to undermine Twitter. It, 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 one of the things that's interesting is that uh, the authoritarians have figured out how to manage their people using electronic tools. Uh, they were scared to death by uh, all of this stuff 10 years ago, and they've responded very creatively, very effectively to the point where uh, uh, I think they can maintain an authoritarian regime for a long time without totalitarianism, but, but still very effectively. Uh, and now they're in the process of saying... Well, how can we use these tools as a weapon the way they perceive the U.S. has used the tools as a weapon in the first uh, 10 years of uh, social media? Um, and we need a response because they're not going to stop doing it to, uh, until we have a response. I'd start okay. with the violation um, of the missile treaty before before worrying about this so much. So, <laughs> well, okay. So this maybe this is of a piece with uh, uh, the administration's uh, strategy for negotiating with Russia, which is to uh, um, uh, hope that the Russians will uh, uh, come around. Um, Supreme Court had a uh, ruling in the case we talked about a while ago. Uh, this is the guy who uh, uh, wrote really vile and threatening and scary things about his ex-wife and uh, the FBI agent who came to interview him uh, and who said uh, afterwards, after he posted on Facebook and was arrested for it, well, come on, I, I was just doing what uh, everybody in hip-hop does. Uh, you shouldn't take it seriously. I didn't. Uh, and the Supreme Court was asked to decide whether uh, uh, the test for uh, threatening action is uh, uh, the understanding of the writer or the understanding of the reader. At least that's how I, I read it. Uh, uh, and they sided with the writer, with the, the guy who wrote all those vile things. Uh, uh, Michael, did you uh, look more closely at that than uh, than I did? Yeah, it's a, it's a somewhat confusing and convoluted opinion, but the bottom line is the court says that even though the, the federal statute prohibiting uh, making of threats in interstate commerce doesn't have a scienter requirement, the court read into it uh, a requirement that the government has to show at least that the defendant uh, sent the communication with the purpose of issuing a threat or with the knowledge that it would be viewed as a threat. And it wasn't enough uh, for the government to argue and a jury to find that a reasonable person would perceive it as a threat. So you have to show at least, at least knowledge uh, or purpose or intent. And it left open the question of whether recklessness as to how it would be perceived. Uh, was enough. 
All right. Well, I'm not sure I'm I'm completely persuaded, but uh, it probably also doesn't have enough to, uh, to do with cyber law in the end to uh, uh, to pursue. Uh, let me, let's close up with one last topic, which is the FBI um, is asking for or talking about expanding to Kalia to cover social media, to cover uh, communications that go out uh, through direct messaging and the like, uh, saying, uh, you know, it's not that we haven't gotten cooperation from social media when we wanted to do a wiretap. It's just that in many cases they haven't been able to do it quickly enough and we need to set some rules in advance for their ability to do wiretaps. Uh, this is different from the claim that they're going dark and that they need access to encrypted communications. It really is an effort to actually change Kalia, uh, which is the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act from 1994 and uh, impose that obligation on cell phone companies and then later on uh, voice over IP providers. Uh, Jason, uh, um, what are the prospects for this? Uh, how serious a push is this? Well, the prospects are... Yeah, it's, it's DOA, but, but just to put it in a little bit of historical perspective. So going dark has of re, of late been the name for the FBI's effort to deal with encryption. But the original use of that term going dark was at least in 2008, 2009, um, when the FBI started a legislative push to, to amend CLIA and, and extend it to internet based communications. Going dark was the term they used for, for that effort. And they would cite routinely the fact that there was a, a very significant number of wiretaps in both uh, criminal and national security cases that providers that were not covered by CALEA um, didn't have the technical capability to implement. So it wasn't about law enforcement having the authority to conduct a wiretap. They, uh, by definition, had already developed enough evidence to satisfy a court that they could meet the legal standard. It was about the provider's ability to help them execute that authority that they already had. And uh, as you suggested, either the, the wiretap couldn't be done at all uh, or the, the provider and, and the government would have to work together to develop a technical solution, which could take months and months, by which time the target wasn't using that method of communication uh, anymore or had moved on to something else. So for, for the better part of four years, uh, my last four years at the department, the FBI was pushing, uh, along with DEA and some other agencies, for a, a massive CALEA reform effort to expand it to Internet-based communications. And... At that time, this is pre-Snowden, uh, certainly truer now, but at that time it was viewed as a political non-starter to try to convince providers that CALEA should be expanded. So uh, they downshifted as a plan B to try to amend Title 18. Uh, and I think there were some parallel amendments to Title 50, but the Title 18 amendments would have dramatically increased the penalties for providers who didn't have the capability to implement a wiretap order, uh, a valid wiretap order that law enforcement served. And there would be these, this graduating series of penalties uh, that would essentially create a, a significant financial disincentive for a provider not to have an intercept capability in advance or, or to be able to develop one quite quickly. Um, and so the FBI, although it wanted CALEA to be expanded, was willing to settle for, uh, for this sort of indirect way to achieve the same thing, to, to, to uh, incentivize providers to develop an intercept solution. That was... Uh, an unlikely uh, bill to, to, to make it to the Hill and to make it through the Hill before Snowden. After Snowden, I think it became, you know, politically plutonium. Um, it was very hard even before Snowden to explain to people that this was not an effort to expand authorities. It was about executing those authorities. That argument became almost impossible to make after in, in the post-Snowden world. What struck me about this story, though, is that they appear to be going back to plan A, which is trying to go in the front door and and uh, and expand Kalia. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the only thing I can interpret is either is that, uh, that the people running this effort now are unaware of the previous history the, uh, that they went through, or they've just decided what the hell, they have nothing to lose. Um, they're unlikely to get it through anyway, so they might as well ask for what they want. I, that's that's my impression. Is uh, the, the, the the there isn't any likelihood in the next two years that uh, uh, encryption is going to get regulated. Uh, uh, but um, the Justice Department, the FBI, are raising this issue. I think partly on what the hell this is what we want. This is what we need. Uh, we might as well say so. Uh, um, and partly, I think preparation of the battle space for the time when they actually have a really serious crime that everybody wishes had been solved and can't be solved because of some of these technical gaps. You know, what drives me nuts is we're getting hacked left and right. We're leaking data left and right. And all these guys can talk about is how they want to leak more data. Like, I mean, when we finish here, it's, you know, this is about encryption. Yep. It's, you know, we're not saying we're banning encryption, but if there's encryption and we can't get through it, we're going to have a graduated series of costs, or you know, we're going to pull Kalia into this. Like, there's entire classes of software we need to protect American business that are very difficult to invest in right now. They're very difficult to know in the long term that you're going to get to run it. Well, I, I actually, I, I, my, my impression is that uh, VCs are falling all over themselves to fund people who say, yeah, we're going to stick it to the NSA. Uh, yeah, and, but those of us who actually know what we're doing know whatever we're doing, whatever would actually work, is actually under threat. There's lots of scammers out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness, there's some great, amazing, you know, 1990s area snake oil going on, but... The smart money is not too sure we're going to get away with securing anything. Well, that's I, I think that's probably right. And why don't we just move right in? Because I had promised I was going to talk about this uh, from the news roundup to to this question. Uh, Julian Sanchez raised it. I raised it with Julian uh, at a previous podcast. Uh, we were talking about uh, the effort to get access to encrypted communications, uh, and I mocked the people who said, uh, oh, you can never provide access without, uh, that. that's always a bad idea. And I said, no, come on. Uh, yes, it, it creates a security risk and you have to manage it, but sometimes the security risk and the cost of managing it is worth it because of the social values. Yeah, sometimes you lose 30 years of uh, background check data. Yeah. I, uh, although I'm not sure they would have, I, I'm not sure how encryption, especially encryption of data in, uh, uh, in motion, would have changed that. It's the question of can you protect the big magic key that gives you access to everything on the internet? And the answer is no. So let me, let me, um, let me point to the, the, the topic that Julian didn't want to get into because it seemed to be more technical than he was comfortable with, which is... Exactly. I said, uh, are you kidding me? End-to-end encryption, the only end-to-end encryption that has been adopted universally uh, uh, on the Internet since encryption became widely uh, uh, exportable is SSL-TLS. That's everywhere. It's default. uh, Okay. Uh, But SSL-TLS... is broken every single day by the thousands, if not the millions, and it's broken by respectable uh, companies. 
in fact, probably every Fortune 500 company insists that, that uh, SSL has to be broken at their firewall. Uh, at their, it's not uncommon. But it's not every. And, and they metrics. do it. They, they do it so that they can inspect the, the traffic to see whether some hacker is exfiltrating. The yeah, traffic. but they're inspecting their own traffic. Yes. Organizations can go ahead and balance their benefits and balance their risks. Yes. When it's an external actor, it's someone else's risk. It's all about externality. Well, yes. Okay. So I, 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 I grant you that. Uh, the, the point is the idea that building in access is always a stupid idea, never worth it, is just wrong. Or at least it's inconsistent with the security practices that we have today. Uh, and probably, if anything, some of the things that uh, companies like Google and Facebook are doing to promote SSL are going to result in more exfiltration of data. People are already exfiltrating data through Google uh, properties because Google insists that they be whitelisted from from these intercepts. What's increasingly happening is that corporations are moving the intercept and DLP and analytics role to the endpoint because operating it as a midpoint just gets slower and more fragile day after day, month after month, year after year. If you want security, look, it's your property. You're a large company. You own 30,000 desktops. They're your desktops. You can put stuff on them. Right. But the problem, the problem that the companies have, which is weighing the importance of end-to-end encryption for security versus the importance of being able to monitor activity for security, they have come down and said, we have to be able to monitor it. We can't just assume that every one of our users is operating safely. Uh, and that's a judgment that a society can make just as easily as, or, or with, once you've got, had the debate, society can say, you know, on the whole, um, ensuring the privacy of everybody uh, in our country versus the risks of criminals misusing that data, uh, we're prepared to say uh, we can take some risk on the security side to have less effective end-to-end encryption in order to make sure that uh, people cannot get away with breaking the law uh, with impunity. Here's the thing, though. Society has straight out said, we don't want bulk surveillance. You want to go ahead and monitor individuals you have a reason to monitor, that's one thing. But you can't, but you can't monitor them. Uh, with, with, if, if they've been given end-to-end, I agree with you. Uh, there's a debate. I'm happy to continue debating it, but I've lost so far. I, uh, yeah. uh, but on... A, you know, you say, no, it's this guy. This guy, we want to listen to his communications. We want to see what he is saying on that encrypted tunnel. Uh, you can't break that just stepping into the middle unless you already own his machine. Yeah, and, and that's, that's unfortunately the expensive route. So that it needs so, to be taken. So if society has said, yes, once you have a court order and probable cause, you ought to be able to see what his communications are or meet the standards for Title III, you ought to be able to see his communications. Uh, uh, and then some guy in Silicon Valley says, screw that, i got a different societal consensus that I prefer. I'm just going to give him the end-to-end encryption. So your, uh, uh, your Title III warrant is, you know, it's, it, you don't, we don't need no stinking warrants because they, they don't do no good. It goes back to the crisis of legitimacy. If we really believe, I mean, as a society, that the right people were being monitored, it'd be a different story. But that belief isn't there. 
Well, it isn't factual It isn't here. I'm, uh, we're at Stanford, uh, and uh, we're at the epicenter of uh, contempt for government. Uh, uh, and so, uh, but, you know, everybody gets a vote. You get a vote if you live in Akron, Ohio, too. Uh, uh, but nobody in Akron gets a vote about whether end-to-end encryption is going to be deployed. Why then? You know, look, average people, normal people, have like eight secure messengers on their phone. Text messaging has fallen off a cliff. Why? And in the day, it's because people want to be able to talk to each other and not have everyone spying on them. There's a cost. There's an actual cost to spying on the wrong people. There is. You go ahead and you make everyone your enemy, you find yourself with very few friends. That's how the world actually works. All right. So I, 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 I think we, we've at least agreed that there is... There's routine breakage of the one end-to-end encryption uh, 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 methodology that has been widely deployed. Uh, I agree with you. People are moving away from man in the middle and looking to find ways to break into uh, systems uh, at the endpoint or close to the endpoint. Okay. Um, Let's... uh, Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about DNSSEC because uh, we have this. We had a great fight yeah. uh, over uh, over SOPA and DNSSEC, uh, and I guess the question for me is, uh, what? Uh, well, maybe you can give us a two seconds or two minutes on uh, what DNSSEC is and how it's doing uh, uh, in terms of deployment. DNSSEC, at the end of the day, makes it as easy to get encryption keys as it is to get the address for a server. Mm-hmm. Crypto should not be drama. You're a developer. You need to figure out how to encrypt something. You hit the encrypt button. You move on with your life. You write your app. Right. That's how it needs to work. And, uh, you know, DNS has been a fantastic success at providing addressing to the Internet. Yep. It'd be nice if keying was just as easy. But let me tell you, how do you go ahead and go out and talk to all these Internet people about how great DNSSEC is when really it's very clear DNS itself, it's not like SOPA fight's not going to come back. Yeah, well, maybe. And it's not like the security establishment, which should be trying to make America safer. It's like, man, we really want to make sure sometimes we get our keys in there. You know, when that happens... It's not that DNSSEC isn't a great technology, but it really depends on politically it being sacrosanct. So you obviously uh, DHS, um, the, the, the OMB, uh, committed to getting DNSSEC deployed uh, at the federal level, yeah. uh, and so their their enthusiasm for DNSSEC has been substantial. Are you saying that they have? undermined that in some way that... Uh, the federal government is not monolithic. Right. You know, Two million employees, right, probably right. more. Yep. And what I'm telling you is, is that the side of the security establishment that's keeping on saying, hey, we got to be able to get our keys in there too, mm-hmm. has really, you know, we've got this dual mission problem going on here. And any system with a dual mission, no one actually believes it's a dual mission. Okay? Right. Look, if Department yeah, yeah. of Transportation was like, maybe cars should crash from time to time. If, you know, Health and Human Services was like, hey, you know, polio's kind of cool for killing some bad guys. Like, no one would take those vaccines. Because maybe it's the other mission. And that's kind of the situation that we have right here. Yeah, DNSSEC is a fantastic technology for key distribution. But we have no idea 
five years from now, what you're going to do with it. And so instead, it's being replaced with garbage. I'm sorry. I know people are doing some very good work. But let me tell you, the value add is, is that it's a bunch of centralized systems that all say, but we're going to stand up to the government. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean, it, that's the value add. And it never scales. It never works. Right. But we keep trying because we've got to do something because it's a disaster out there. And honestly, anything's better than what we got. But what we should be doing is DNSSEC. And as long as you keep making this noise, we can't do it. So DNSSEC is up to, what, 10% deployment? DNSSEC needs a round of investment that makes it a turnkey switch. Ah. DNSSEC could be done with every server just doesn't. Right. And we just transition the Internet to it. You could do that. The technology's there, but the politics are completely broken. Okay, uh, uh, last set of questions. Uh, you're the chief scientist at White Ops, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, let me tell you what I think White Ops does, and then you can tell me what it really does. Uh, uh, I think of White Ops as having made the observation that uh, um, the hackers who are getting into our systems uh, are doing it from a distance. They're mm-hmm. sending bots in to, to, to uh, pack up and exfiltrate data. They're, uh, uh, they're logging on. Uh, and bots look different from human beings when they type stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, the people who are trying to manage uh, an intrusion remotely also looks different from somebody who's actually on the network, and that, that what White Ops is doing is saying, we can find those guys yep. and stop them. That's exactly what we're doing. Look, I don't care how clever your buffer overflow is, you're not teleporting in front of a keyboard, okay? Yeah. That's not going to happen. So our observation is that we have this very strong signal. It's not perfect because sometimes people VPN in. Right. Sometimes people make scripted processes. But they can't. St- they can't keep a VPN up for very exactly. long. Exactly. Like there's there's just a bunch of signals that are so strong. In some cases, you don't even need native code on the machine. You can pick it up in JavaScript. Yeah. So you have a website that's being uh, lily pad accessed either through bulk communication, the command and control to right. a bot, or through interactive remote control, turns out it leaks signals that we're able to pick up in JavaScript. You know, so this sounds so sensible and so obvious that my guess my question is, how come it took this long to have that uh, observation become a company? I don't know, but we built it. I mean, the reality is is that it requires knowledge of a lot of really interesting browser internals um, at White Ops. You know, we've been breaking browsers for right. years. So we're basically taking all these bugs that actually never let you attack a user, but they have completely different responses inside of a bot environment. That's kind of the secret sauce. Every browser is really a core object that like reads HTML5 and JavaScript and video and blah, all the things you got to do to be a web browser. And then there's like this goop, right? It like puts it on the screen, it has a back button, gives you an address bar, lets you configure stuff. So it turns out that the bots use the core, not the goop. Oh, yeah, because the, the core enables them to write one yeah. script for everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, they're running. You have to think of bots as really terribly tested browsers. Yeah. And once you realize that, it's like, oh, it's, it's barely tested. Let's make it break. Huh. So I, 
you, I know you've been doing work with uh, companies looking for intrusions. You've also been working with advertisers yeah. uh, uh, trying to find people who are basically uh, engaged in click uh, uh, fraud. Um, uh, any stories you can tell about catching uh, people on well-guarded networks? Um, I think one story I really enjoyed, we actually ran the largest study into ad fraud that had ever been done of its nature. Right. Um, we found that there's going to be about $6 billion of ad frauds at whiteops.com slash bot fraud. And uh, we had this one case. So we tell the world, we're going to go ahead and uh, run this test in August and find all the fraud. You know what? We lied. We do that sometimes. Right. We actually ran the test from a little bit in July all the way through September. Right. And we watched this one campaign, 40% fraud. Then when we said we were going to start, 3% fraud. <laughs> then when we said we were going to start, stop, stop back to 40. <laughs> we just had this square wave. It was it was the most beautiful demo. We showed this to the customers, you know, one of the biggest brands in the country. And they're just like, those guys did what? And here's what's great. For my entire career, I've been dealing with how people break in. You know, this bug, that bug, what's wrong with Flash, what's wrong with Java. This is the first time in my life I've ever been dealing with why. People are doing this fraud to make money. Right. Let's stop the checks from being written. It's yeah, yeah. incredibly entertaining. Oh, that is that's that's very cool. Oh, uh, yeah. And it is it, it is a it is a I, I guess maybe this is the observation. We wasted so much time trying to keep people out of systems hopelessly. Uh, now everybody says, oh, you have to assume they're in, but that doesn't mean you have the tools to really deal with them, and this is a tool to deal with people when they're in. There's been a major shift from prevention to detection. We basically say, look, okay, they're going to get in, but they don't necessarily know what perfectly to do once they're in. Their actions are fundamentally different than your legitimate users. And they're always going to be because they're trying to do different things. Right. So if you can detect properties of the different things that they're doing, you actually have signals. And it always comes down to signals and intelligence. Yeah, no, that's right. I'm, I, I'm looking forward to NSA deploying White Ops uh, technology, <laughs> uh, but I won't ask you to respond to that one. Uh, okay, Dan, this was terrific, I have to say. Uh, I'd rather be on your side of an argument than <laughs> against you, but uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, arguing this out. Uh, and uh, uh, thanks um, uh, for coming in, Michael, Jason. Uh, uh, appreciate it. Uh, uh, just to close up, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send uh, comments to Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com. Leave a message uh, uh, at uh, 202-862-5785. I'm still waiting for an entertainingly abusive uh, voicemail. Uh, we haven't got them. Uh, this has been Episode 70 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we're going to be joined by Catherine Lotrianti, who's the Associate Director of the Institute for Law, Science, and Global Security at Georgetown. And coming soon, we're going to have Jim Baker, the General Counsel of the FBI, Rob Kanaki, a Senior Fellow for Cyber Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us uh, uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.